When we think about rights today, we tend to think about the Bill of Rights. And we take for granted protections against any level of government, local, state, and federal. But that's not exactly what the founders had in mind. They were principally concerned about overreach by the federal government. It wasn't until the 1940s that the Supreme Court started considering those first 10 amendments in light of the actions of states. One of the cases that helped forge this transformation focused on, of all things, the Pledge of Allegiance. In 1935, a pair of siblings named Lillian and William Gobitis were expelled by their Pennsylvania school for refusing to recite the pledge. They were Jehovah's Witnesses and, as such, had been taught that saluting the flag of any government amounted to idolatry. The family sued, arguing that their religious freedom had been violated. The case worked its way up to the Supreme Court, which in 1940 ruled 8-1 to against the Gobitis family. Historian Sarah Beringer-Gordon has written about this case. She told her co-host Brian that it's worth remembering that the author of the majority opinion, Justice Felix Frankfurter, had been born into a Jewish family in Austria. What he said was, this is the way you attach a child to the United States. This kind of ritual, this kind of ritual engaged in with other children uh, in allegiance to a powerful symbol such as the flag was what tied Americans together and made them a nation. So it was the state's right to promote citizenship among children. Exactly. And it's fair to say that in the build-up to the Second World War, there was a great sense of danger to the country. Um, And most states enacted mandatory flag salute rituals to do just that. Okay. So uh, the Supreme Court rules pretty definitively that the state's correct, that those kids— can be suspended from school because they won't say the Pledge of Allegiance. Yet three years later, if I'm correct, there's another Supreme Court case that rules in the opposite direction. Tell me about this Barnett case, uh, another case involving Jehovah's Witnesses and the Pledge of Allegiance. In in Supreme Court time, three years is a nanosecond. Yes. (laughs) Very dramatic. It is fair to say that when Frankfurter handed down his opinion, um, several of his clerks were very distressed by what had happened. And over the next couple of years, justice after justice gave hints that they might like to reconsider the opinion. In part, this was motivated by the violence around the country that embarrassed the United States and and its officials. Also, though, the conduct of World War II Uh made an enormous difference. By 1943, it had become clear that something terrible was happening in Germany. Mm -hmm. Nobody quite knew the extent of the Holocaust But it was clear that Hitler was engaged in widespread violence against minorities, not only Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses. 10,000 were sent to concentration camps in Germany. So this was because they refused to to heil Hitler. Hitler. Uh Exactly, exactly. So partly the court and the country had learned from the violence at home and the violence abroad directed against minorities of all kinds, especially religious minorities. Did the decision, who wrote that decision, and did it refer explicitly to 
either what had happened at home or what was going on in Germany? It was Justice Jackson who was well-known after the war for his um, important role at the Nuremberg trials. Jackson referred both directly and indirectly, I think, in some of the most quoted and quotable language from the Supreme Court. The eloquence of the opinion is stunning. Um, He said, once we start looking for unanimity in these ways, we achieve only the unanimity of the graveyard. Really powerful, dark language. When we start punishing dissenters for such mild behavior as refusing to salute, we wind up eliminating the dissenters themselves. That's the road he saw. Eliminating? Yes. Yeah, so that's a direct reference to the concentration camps, it would seem like. It is. Um, In a footnote as well, he referred to the fact that the salute closely resembled the salute to Hitler. This was a a raised arm but palm up salute before placing the hand on the heart, where Heil Hitler was a palms down straight arm. Is that how people used to salute? It is. And what was the reaction to this decision, which in essence was the opposite of Gobitis? So it's very difficult for the Supreme Court to do such a thing and hold on to its prestige and influence um, and respect around the country. And the Supreme Court clearly understood this. The decision was announced on Flag Day. (laughs) So in part, this was about deference to considerations of the flag, as well as the conclusion that we don't need to punish schoolchildren whose religion dictates otherwise, that small minority groups who are not themselves violent have the protection of the Constitution when they exercise their religion. And I think the violence around the country, as well as the deep desire among Americans to distinguish themselves from Hitler, to say we are not like that, produced widespread satisfaction. So this was a well-received It was. The New York Times headline ran, Blot Removed. And how do we get such a concern for individual rights at the very time that the state is growing, the product of the New Deal itself, and then, of course, World War II and the Cold War that ensues? Yes. It strikes me as two different trends. It's often said that war is the health of the state, and certainly World War II was very healthy for the power and economy of the United States. Nonetheless, The Supreme Court, which had been in the mid-1930s in the business of overturning New Deal economic legislation um, as a result either of natural evolution of doctrine or the court packing plan, pick your historical interpretation, had really gotten out of the business of overturning such legislation and very soon thereafter sent hints through footnotes in economic opinions that it would begin to take the rights of discrete and insular minorities seriously going forward. In other words, protecting constitutional rights against this very powerful new government. So it's because the state's so powerful that the court said, we've got a new role here. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. It's it's about what kind of government we want given how large it's going to be and what the limits are we want to place on that power. An ongoing battle, one that's never really over. 
Sarah Baringer-Gordon is a historian at the University of Pennsylvania and author of The Spirit of the Law, Religious Voices, and the Constitution in Modern America. You know, one of the things that strikes me about that story and talking about the Pledge of Allegiance is it, it, of course, reminds me of the moment that we're in now when there's talk about taking a knee uh, during the national anthem and what, mm-hmm. what that means. And the thing that's striking about both of those stories is the real power that those kinds of rituals or those ritualistic displays have. And again, uh, kind of like the Bill of Rights, you know, things we take for granted right. – until right. there's something that suddenly brings them to your attention. And then you actually have to rethink what it means. And, and given what it means, what do you want to do about it? That's right. No, it's believed to be a timeless tradition that we stand during the national anthem or that we put our hand over our heart during the Pledge of Allegiance. And all of these things are constantly in flux. And I, I really enjoy these moments when you can look back and imagine in your mind's eye what a s- salute to the flag would look like that actually hearkened to what a salute for the Nazi regime might have looked like. The fact that we were that close to that salute um, was, you know, a moment in time in this country, right? And so just thinking through the dynamism of these ceremonies and rituals, I think, forces us to, to raise exactly this question, which is, is this now a moment where our relationship to the Star Spangled Banner is going through a revision. All of this is, you know, happening in real time in ways that (laughs) some Americans can sometimes be uncomfortable with. And the drama is increased, of course, by the fact that millions of people are watching to see what other people do. You know, whether you you put your hand over your heart in a school classroom or when nobody else is actually paying attention to you in a crowd at a ball game is one thing but when cameras and the president of the United States are trained on you it's a whole different kind of drama it seems mm-hmm. 